The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, everyone. I'm still a little bit jet-lagged. I've just got back from England about 48 hours ago. I was there for a couple of weeks. Uh, but I trust you all had uh, at least some opportunity over the uh, spring break to get some uh, rest, and we thought that the timing of uh, our uh, conference today uh, was perhaps um, inconvenient in one respect, in that uh, the uh, people go away with their children and so forth, but, but convenient at another, in another way that uh, this time of the year, I find, is very intense. It's very busy. It's very hectic. Easter's coming up. There's loads of things on, and there doesn't seem like there's much space uh, at this time, particular point in the year, to take some time out. So hopefully this will be of some value to you today in that regard. Our theme for today then, as uh, Randy has so eloquently introduced, uh, is life, life and death. And uh, in order to uh, speak about this this morning, uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, uh, specifically the issue of abortion in some detail. But what I wanted to do in this first session was rather than diving straight into the uh, context, uh, the immediate context in which we find ourselves and the tragedy and evil of that context, to actually set the foundation of a biblical understanding of why life is protected by God and why all of life is in God's hands. In order to begin that, I want to talk, uh, to take Isaiah chapter 51 and read the first eight verses to you. Isaiah chapter 51 and uh, verses 1 through 8. And in particular, I'm going to be dealing with the sixth commandment in the Decalogue, you shall not murder. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness... You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden." and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. In dealing with a subject like this one, it is important that we root ourselves in the biblical promises and a biblical understanding of the righteousness and justice of God. If we are awake as Christians, we will appreciate that we are living in very, very difficult times, as Randy has noted, for proclaiming and upholding God's Word. We live in an environment that seems hell-bent almost on a culture, creating a culture of death and not life. And those who stand for life 
and righteousness in terms of the word of God will most certainly face insult and reproach and persecution, and sometimes it will come from unlikely sources. If you were tracking with the press a few weeks ago, you may have noticed there were articles appearing in the paper and online that were being written against me by a Christian commentator uh, in the city of Toronto because of my perspective on the ethics of Scripture. And we cannot expect that we are going to escape from uh, reproach and rejection and being ostracized and so forth if we stand for the righteousness of God. To call sin lawlessness, which is what the Bible calls it, sin is lawlessness, is deemed offensive, intolerant, self-righteous, and unacceptable. But the Lord Jesus led us to expect this, didn't he, when he said... This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So you're not going to be winning any beauty contests, uh, any uh, popularity contests when you stand in our culture now for life on God's terms, righteousness. We're reminded, of course, that we are the light of the world as Christians. And in this cosmic struggle, we're given the assurance that the darkness cannot overcome the light. Now, I started with the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 51 here, because he offers this this note of hope and comfort for those who, in their hearts, he says, is God's law. For those who have God's law in their hearts, there is a word of hope And comfort. Those who follow after righteousness, that is the true children of Abraham, the children of faith, as we're told in verse 2, God declares through the prophet that law will proceed from him, that his justice will be a light to the peoples, because his righteousness is near and his salvation has gone forth. The coastlands, that is the ends of the earth, are going to put their trust in God. And he gives us this emphatic promise that I love in verse 6. My righteousness will not be abolished. People may think, uh, and we look at our culture, and we see the effort to abolish the righteousness of God. But God says, my righteousness, my justice, cannot be ultimately abolished. Indeed, for the remnant that love the Lord and his righteousness, the wilderness is going to be made like Eden. The desert, like the garden of the Lord, where joy, gladness, life, thanksgiving, and song are going to be found in verse 3. So no matter how flagrant the violation of God's word is in our time, and it is flagrant, no matter how much the sixth commandment is violated, you shall not murder, we must not become weary or discouraged. The purpose of today is not to make you weary and discouraged about the condition of our culture, but rather to recognize that law has gone out from God the Almighty and his righteousness will not be abolished in the sweep of history. The question for us is, are we going to be uh, light, salt and light, in our immediate context as believers? Second, we see again from the prophet Isaiah uh, and in this uh, great commandment, the sixth commandment, that the goal of God's law is always the furtherance of life and blessing. The purpose and the goal of the law of God is the furtherance of life and blessing. You shall not murder or kill is a commandment from the Lord of life. And its purpose is the furtherance of life at its best. It isn't God's word, God's law, isn't just a set set of don'ts to make people's lives miserable. It's the absolute opposite. It is given for the furtherance of life at its best so that to obey God's law is to come close to the richness and fullness of life. And we have to succeed as Christians in our time at communicating this. Indeed, the whole of God's word, the whole of God's law is the celebration of life under God. So that scripture says, this is the way, walk in it. And this means that the focus of our lives as we live in terms of God's word is life and hope. Always, even in the midst of darkness, we're a people of life and hope. Not death. 
We're promised in the gospel that the hope that we have cannot disappoint. It cannot disappoint. And our hope in God and his righteousness then will spur us to action. Because people of hope are people of action. It means we'll live and apply his word with faith and boldness to every aspect of life. It won't induce passivity in us or indifference, but service to God for the increase of his government. You know, St. Augustine put it beautifully, I think, when he said, hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the present situation, courage to act believing it doesn't have to be this way. Although unchecked sinful anger can lead to and is indeed in in Scripture a form of murder, anger in itself is not sinful. On the contrary, the word anger appears 455 times in the Bible, and of those times, 375 cases refer to God. 375 refer to God himself. This is because God is angry at injustice, at lies, oppression, murder, and all lawlessness. And so our response is righteous anger at flagrant lawlessness that impugns the majesty of God and the image of God in man and a compassionate courage in declaring and living out the standards of God's word in our lives. That's what it should produce. So let's consider for a moment the Decalogue and the sixth commandment in the Decalogue, you shall not murder, and the validity of this law as we consider the issue of life today, the commandment from the Lord of life. Because God's law is an expression of God's character and his nature, and since God's purpose in his law is the furtherance of life, we can't set God's law aside. It's basic to the Christian faith because love in Scripture is not antinomian, that's anti-law. It is, in fact, the fulfilling of the law. I was doing a television interview last night in which, to the uh, irritation of the host, uh, when he said, suggested that my perspective was unloving, I said, according to St. Paul in Romans 13, love is the fulfillment of the law. For Contemporary culture, love isn't just simply a feeling, and my personal, an aspect of my emotional state, my personal desires, it is totally disconnected from the law of God. So uh, the idea there then becomes that uh, if I'm getting something out of a particular relationship, uh, if I love the person, then I have to, then I'm going to behave in a certain way. But as soon as love has disappeared, as soon as I don't feel that anymore, I can abandon my responsibilities in those relationships. Uh, It doesn't go over well when you refer to God's law in the public media today, I can assure you. Love without law, then, is not love, it is permissiveness. So if we think we're being loving toward people when we overlook or don't address the violation of God's law, Scripture says we've totally misunderstood We're not loving people by abandoning God's law. What does Paul say in that marvelous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13 that most everyone wants read at their wedding? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So love without law is permissiveness, and it's a denial of good and evil in pursuit of an illusory higher way that there's a higher way than God's law, the way of love, which is the way of my feelings, the way I feel about things, as though our sensibilities are more true than God's word. And this is the issue we face in the church today. This is especially important when we consider God's law of life in the sixth commandment, because throughout Scripture, throughout history, this law has had very important public social, and civil implications. Although we do see moral, civil, and ceremonial implications or aspects to God's law in Scripture, 
When you open the Bible, you don't read a list of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. You don't have a list of judicial laws given to you. Moses doesn't say, right now we'll talk about judicial law. We can't say that the implications of God's law then have been abolished. God's law is God's law. In fact, judicial or civil laws are actually moral laws or specific applications of moral laws in the Bible. So, for example, murder, theft, and false witness are still civil offenses in our culture, aren't they? If you perjure yourself in court, it's a civil offense. Theft, which is part of the Decalogue, is a civil offense. Murder is a civil offense. Historically, in our culture, assault on parents and adultery were civil crimes. We took them seriously. We see them as purely personal now. You know, to commit adultery is nothing more than entertainment. But we used to, in our culture, consider it a civil issue. Now, God reigned over Israel. He judged Israel, but he judged the nations also in terms of the standards of his law. So when the Canaanites are expelled from the land, the reason we're given in Scripture is their immorality. God used Israel to expel them. And when Amos is preaching and prophesying in the first chapters, he's preaching to the pagan nations around them in in terms of the standards of God's law. Noah, when he went to Nineveh, wasn't going to Nineveh on the basis of some ethereal pagan standard of law but went to preach to Nineveh in terms of God's righteousness and justice. And this reign of God is all over both the Old and emphatically asserted in the New Testament, where both the family, the church, and the state are placed under Jesus Christ. So the issue is in our time, has God lost his moral authority? I mean, since the time of Moses or the fall of Jerusalem, or the Reformation, has God somehow lost his moral authority? Or has he changed his mind? Has he decided, well, you know, the scripture says, I am the Lord, I change not. Has he decided, well, you know, the issue of life and death now, not so important to me as it used to be? The unborn child, not quite as important as it used to be. The value of life, not quite what it used to be. I saw things differently in the first century. Well, That may be true of human social orders who are constantly changing, but not true, we know, of God. He hasn't updated himself, and he certainly doesn't accommodate himself to our cultural preferences. The abiding validity, then, of God's law in our era does not mean, however, that law has a saving function in our lives. And this is very important when we talk about the law of God. The law does not save us. The idea of the law saving us is legalism. And the ancient and the modern world, in fact our own age, has tried to make a savior of the law, which leads to totalitarianism. When men and social orders uh, cease to see Christ as the source of salvation, they look to law as the source of salvation, and they create totalitarian, socialistic, social orders. Man-made laws then become the instrument of remaking society and saving people by total regulation. So an unending stream of regulations and rules comes from the state, the new source of sovereignty, to save human beings. We were discussing actually last night on television whether the state should be able to coerce people to have their children vaccinated, to coerce health. Now, Without digressing too much, I've got three children. I've had my children back. You've heard about this outbreak of, uh, is it measles, I think, in BC. And there's some concern about certain diseases that we'd largely dealt with rearing their heads because vaccination actually with paganism and the green movement and the idea of alternative therapies, green vaccinations, uh, has been leading to the recurrence of some of these diseases. Now, I simply said, well, I'm aware that when you pump chemicals into your body, different people do react in different ways. I weighed up the risks with respect to my children, and I 
took the risk based on the evidence that it was much more likely that they'd benefit from these vaccinations than not. But has the state got the right to coerce your health? If we say that the state can coerce you to vaccinate your children, can they then coerce you to send them to the state institutions, pull their teeth, do whatever the state wants you to do? Total regulation then becomes the source of salvation. This is a utopian utopian alternative to the kingdom of God. Is that man must create a social order and save everyone by law. But God's law has a limited function. It isn't salvation. Wherever law is seen as salvation, you have statism. Law, then, is not the source of salvation for us. Our salvation is Christ's atonement. That is salvation. But the law is then the path of life or the way of life. It's not the source of life, but it is the way of life. Since God is our creator and the Lord of all life, we are born into a world of total meaning under God's law and government. No child is born as a brute fact into this universe, as undefined, unnamed, unidentified. God alone self-identifies. I am that I am. He then names every family in heaven and earth, according to St. Paul. He defines all things. And we are born into a world of total meaning under God's law and government. And as such, life is completely on his terms. And this is so important if we're under- to understand the Christian perspective on life. Our arguments aren't merely sociological. Our argument, our fundamental position, our starting point is that God is the Lord of all life. Our position is theocentric, not anthropocentric. Our position is that God defines all things. Life, then, is on his terms, and it's not ours by independent right. It's the gift of God. Life is the gift of God. As a result, the government and law of God is universal so that when we obey God's law and apply it to our lives, our church, our community, we are, in fact, living and working in terms of the kingdom and rule of God. It's not a private matter where we can leave everyone else and the world to go its own way as though moral truth was subjective and relative. It's just for our institution. It's just for our immediate community. It doesn't matter what the world does. We've got our conversation, our language game over here, and the world has different other language groups and different meanings. We have our meaning. Many Christians now live in terms of this idea. It's not subjective. It's not relative. The law has abiding validity for us because it has abiding validity for all. God is not just the creator of Christians, is he? He's the Lord of all life. It's a universal order that binds all men and nations, all times, all cultures. And this moves us always toward life and blessing. But where humanistic faith dominates, the orientation is always towards sin and death. Jesus Christ is light and life. To turn away from him then is sin and death. In other words, the direction of our culture is logical. It's not illogical in terms of their assumptions about the world. It is an outworking and an expression. The development, progressivism, is the development of their understanding of God and reality. Nature is all there is. As one theologian has put it, all men acting on their faith either kill themselves by degrees and kill their society as well, or by God's grace and word, they and their societies move towards life, and that more abundantly. In fact, the way the commandments are framed in Hebrew is in the form of a comprehensive description of social reality. So when you're reading the Ten Commandments, what you're reading is a description of social reality under God. It means 
in a sense, this command, you will not murder. This is a description of social reality for people under God. You will not murder. There is then a connection between accepting that all life is on God's terms, the sixth commandment, and the first commandment, I am the Lord your, and the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if a culture accepts the teaching, I am the Lord your God, both creator and redeemer, it's going to reject humanism and materialism, which despises life by rejecting God's image in man and his word. And it will adopt instead a high regard for life, and the sin of murder will be seen as a terrible crime against the Lord of life and his image in man. So if we accept the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, we're not going to have difficulty accepting the other commandments. If we don't accept the first commandment, of course, the culture is going to have a huge issue with all the others. Only as we regard God as the Lord of life and God's image in men and women will we see murder as the terrible crime that it is. Now, what is it that God's law then prohibits in this regard? Let's talk about it because it's not immediately plain to people today. In Jeremiah 4.31, the Lord says through the prophet, My soul is weary because of murderers. My soul is weary because of murderers. And what angers and grieves God should anger and grieve us. And it's remarkable today how many believers, professing Christians, are neither angered nor grieved by the murderous character of our culture. The sixth commandment then expressly forbids unlawful killing. And it requires, moreover, that we preserve the lives of others and our own lives. And the primary reason that the Bible offers for this is that the image of God is in man. So to take someone's life lawlessly is the is a crime against God and a crime against his image in man. And it is the prerogative of God alone to give and take life. That is to say it can only be done in terms of his word because to give and take life is beyond your authority and beyond mine. Thank God that we do not make our own law. Because if I was the world's lawmaker, God help us all. And if I was my own lawmaker, I would be in hell. So it is the grace of God that we are given the gift of his law from the greater to the lesser, that he alone has the authority to give and take life. Now, the frightening thing about our culture today is that it has usurped the authority of God in saying, we will give and take life at our behest. And it will actually use your money to do it. We then need to relearn in our disposable culture the value of human life. In a disposable culture... We have to relearn the value of human life today, even in the church. There is something wholly and qualitatively different about human life, even when compared to other important life, like animal life. Stare at an ape's face, if you haven't done so. Go to the zoo. Take my children to Toronto Zoo regularly. See the chimpanzees and the orangutans and the gorillas. And you can look through the glass and you can have a good long stare into the face of what some people believe is one of your ancestors. You look in the face of an ape and there is something dead about it in comparison to a human being. There's life. There's animate life. But there's something very dead about even higher mammal life in comparison to a human person. Even when asleep, there is something totally other 
about a human person. If you're a parent here, have you ever looked at your child sleeping? There is something wholly other about human life. This is an aspect of the image of God in man. From the beginning, we were made in God's image, and the value of that life and image is stressed in God's word to Noah after the flood. This is what God says in Genesis 9, 6 through 8. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now this was declared by God before the law of Moses. And you'll notice that God here establishes the death penalty for lawless killing. And the reason given is that the image of God is in man. That's the reason. It is critical to notice here then that the value of the precept, the commandment, is comprehended by the severity of the penalty. The value of the precept, that's a take-home is comprehended by the severity of the penalty. If the penalty for murder was established here by God as two silver shekels, you know, 50 bucks, what would that say about the value of human life? This is where you see that the more serious the penalty, the more valuable or important or far-reaching the precept. And this is why law is a value-processing system. Law is a value-teaching system. Law is precept and penalty together. Otherwise, it's just advice. If there's no penalty attached to law, it's counsel, isn't it? It's advice. How many of you would keep the traffic laws if there was no penalty attached? You know, like... We advise 100 on the 401. <laughs> you know, most of us, not myself, but most of us would, would be speeding along there at 140 or whatever. But the penalty then, it's important to understand, if you're going to comprehend, if we're going to comprehend God's word on this issue, it tells us about the value of the precept. It is because... The death penalty was established by God for murder, that we understand the value of life to God. Indeed, the law of God given to Moses in Numbers 35, 29 through 34 shows that no pardon, ransom, or other form of restitution was permissible in the case of first-degree murder. In fact, to let the murderer go was to defile the land. Clearly then the commandment, you shall not kill, did not mean life can never be taken or that all forms of life are sacred as in Albert Schweitzer's vision or the romantic movement's vision of nature or the modern green movements of nature. The Bible doesn't teach reverence for life. Don't step on a bug. You've just you know, killed one of your ancestors or whatever or relative or this is reverence somehow for all of life. Scripture doesn't teach that. It teaches reverence for God, the Lord of life. And when we reverence God, he teaches us the value of various aspects of life. Thus, this commandment is connected to the first. We have no other gods before the living God. Life itself cannot be idolized and placed before God. That is, death in Scripture is not the ultimate evil. It's not the ultimate evil. It's the last enemy that's going to be defeated. But it isn't the ultimate evil. Both the protecting and taking of life then are part of the Christian understanding of God's word. And it can only be done in terms of his word. This means that, in the first place, we are to provide for our families. We're to multiply. We're to give life. We're to plant and establish life. We're to eat, which means eating plants. 
We are, which means agriculture, of course. We are to displace, at times, animal life for human flourishing. That is, we eat animals. This was given to Noah in Genesis 9. We're to do so in a responsible way, of course, because God requires us to have regard for our beast. Scripture requires it, that we have regard to the life of animals. Do you know, most of the humane societies, the protection of birds and animals, were Christian foundations, Christian charities, the Toronto Humane Society. They they were begun by Christians. It was the Puritans who got rid of bull baiting and all these kinds of uh, dog fighting and so on, because they were concerned with animal life. God killed, though, the first animal to clothe the nakedness of our first parents. He required animal sacrificial substitutes for sin. He gives the animal kingdom for food to Noah and his sons, and he promised the Israelites help in displacing dangerous wild animals from the promised land. And Jesus was quite ready to sacrifice an entire herd of swine, the demoniac Gennesaret, so that he could deliver one man from a devil. An entire herd of swine. What does that say about animal rights in terms of the modern understanding of the movement? And Peter Singer. The idea that uh, a pig has got more value than a baby, a newborn baby, because it wants life. Our duty, though, in this regard, extends beyond the animal kingdom to man himself. So we are to have regard to animal life, but it's man himself. And so we're required to avoid envy and jealousy, which lead to violent anger and the committing of murder. And the first murderer was Cain, who rose up to slay his brother in a jealous rage. Actually, it was premeditated because he says, come, let's, let's walk. Come take a walk with me in the field. And there he killed him. This also means that we seek the apprehension of murderers. And in the case of first-degree murder, the death penalty. This has largely disappeared in our time. And as we have steadily diminished the value of life and denied the image of God in man, it's logical that we would deny severe penalties for murder. When we overturn God's requirements, though, we play God and we end up sparing life that God requires and taking life that God protects. When we reject God and his word, we turn his law on its head and we spare the life that God requires and we take the life that God protects. Now, I recognize that I'm walking into controversial waters, and you know that the ICC never usually does that. But God has given to human authority, the state, the power of the sword to execute justice. This is a biblical principle. God's law, we are told in Scripture, was made for the transgressor. Timothy 1, verses 1 following. Read 1 Timothy 1. And Paul tells us one of the functions there of God's law says the law is made for the transgressor, for the lawbreaker. And he lists a number of the crimes of both the Decalogue and the case laws of Moses. And he says, and anything else which is contrary to my gospel, sound teaching. In Romans 13, we are told the state is to bear the sword as God's minister of wrath, God's servant. By the way, that's the whole idea of, the, of a minister, an MP, a prime minister, or the ministry of corrections. Service. It's a diaconate of God. That's the Western understanding of government. Historically, it's there in our language. St. Paul implicitly also upholds the death penalty, saying at his trial in the book of Acts, and I quote, If I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. God's law then does permit the lawful killing of animals. It permits self-defense and in some cases lethal force if you were broken into in the night. This used to be part of our legal system. 
A justice system that upholds the death penalty for capital offenses in order to value and demonstrate the value of life. Defensive wars as an extension of the powers of the state to defend citizens against criminal assault. It's not a ban on all forms of killing. It's unlawful killing. That is killing that is not in terms of God's word and his law. In fact, if we look at the great leaders in scripture, we see that King David, Moses, and even Abraham engaged in defensive and judicial, ju- judicial war or killing. Even Abraham, the friend of God, in a defensive action. Do you remember that Lot and his wife and family were carried off by one of the kings of the area? What does Abraham do? Oh, well, let's pray for them. No, he gathers 300 of his armed men, and he goes and rescues his brother. And he puts lawless criminals to the sword. Now, I'm just pointing out, I'm not suggesting that's what we're we're to do. I'm just pointing out that Abraham, the friend of God, is authorized by God in a defensive action against an invading king to defend his extended family. And God does not condemn him for it. God likewise uses Israel, used Israel to judge the lawlessness and sexual perversion and child sacrifice of the Canaanites. So the sixth commandment prohibits lawless killing that is done outside of God's prerogative and law. Since God's image is in man for certain offenses against man, the Bible says we forfeit the right to life. Now let's consider specifically now the great tragedy of our culture, the criminality of abortion and euthanasia. I just want to deal with some of this specifically. Our culture, as I've said, in our rebellion against God has reached the point where we preserve the guilty and murder the innocent. And we think we're righteous. A couple of examples will suffice. Despite Canadian pride in our peacefulness, In our law-abiding character, UN international comparisons tell us that Canada has a rate of police-reported criminal incidents among the highest in the world and almost double that of the United States. Our southern neighbor, who we love to rail on. In fact, Canada and the United States are in the top five child sex trafficking countries in the world. And our Supreme Court has just struck down all laws against prostitution, which is fed by the sex trade. Further, our failure to punish incorrigible violent offenders and murderers with the biblically required death penalty, Genesis 9, 5 and 6, Numbers 35, 16, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, in the name of rehabilitation and an enlightened humaneness has led to rampant evil in our culture. This form of judgment is precisely what the scriptures lead us to expect if we fail to punish the guilty. Let me tell you something. In the 33-year period from 1975 to 2008, some 508 violent, serious violent offenders were released from Canadian prisons after social and psychological rehabilitation being deemed no longer a danger to society. 508. After their release, those 508 convicted felons proceeded to murder 557 innocent Canadians. That was after their rehabilitation. As such, what we have promoted in our abandonment of God's law is a culture of death. And our failure to apply God's law here leads to the preservation and encouragement of a professional criminal class which costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars per head to house every year. And building of prisons is big business. It's state business too. We have failed to punish the guilty. And in like manner, we have turned God's law. So that's what we've done with the, with the guilty. <laughs> what have we done with the innocent? We've murdered the innocent. 
This is a true story in a class of medical students. You may have heard this before. A class of medical students were attending a seminar on abortion where the lecturer presented them with a case study. And this was the case study for them to consider. The father of the family has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. They've had four children already. The first is blind. The second died in infancy. The third is deaf and dumb. The fourth has tuberculosis. The mother is now pregnant with her fifth child. And she is willing to have an abortion if that is what you suggest. What would be your advice? Discuss. The class of medical students. So they go away and discuss it. And the students come back and overwhelmingly vote to terminate the pregnancy. At which point the lecturer says, congratulations, you have just murdered Beethoven. That was the family history of Beethoven. Henry Morgenthaler, the Polish-born Canadian abortionist who served jail time here for performing what were then illegal abortions, about 5,000 of them himself, one on Mother's Day on television. He recently received, as you know, the Order of Canada. The highest civilian citation for his contribution to freedom. And this was done by ensuring there would be no abortion law so that babies can be aborted at full term in our civilized nation here. Today, induced abortion is so common... It's experienced by nearly a third of all Canadian women during their reproductive years. Consistently, half of all women accessing abortion today are in their 20s. In the generation since the sexual revolution, and we've talked about the sexual revolution before, these things are all connected. A sexual revolution against God's word produces a social revolution in the area of all of life. It has a knock-on effect. Abortions have dramatically increased. In Ontario, York Region has an 80% abortion rate among teens aged 15 through 19. Followed by Halton, which has a 77.9 abortion rate. Peel, a 71.7 abortion rate. And Toronto, a 71.7 abortion rate. The Ontario average is 59.1. Now, we're not the worst in the world. Russia has more abortions than live births. But we are a murderous culture. Further, leading medical intellectuals writing in the Journal of Medical Ethics are calling for the legitimization of afterbirth abortion, that is a euphemism for infanticide, for the same reasons that anyone would have an abortion now in Canada, declaring that the newborn infant is only a potential person without a moral right to life. In the UK, the British Medical Association advised doctors that there may be grounds for abortion solely on the basis of the sex of the fetus. So that, as in other parts of the world today in Asia, baby girls are being aborted at tremendously high rates. This is what feminism has done for women. Because feminism often drove and did drive the abortive uh, culture of our time. A recent investigative journalistic operation found that abortions on the basis of gender only was so widespread in the UK that it was becoming common, and it remains, nonetheless, against the law. But a blind eye is turned. Subsequent inspections of clinics in the UK found that there was pre-signing of abortion forms by doctors. You're supposed to at least have a consultation with the patient. There were no contact with the women seeking to acquire abortions, and there was photocopying of doctors' signatures to pre-approve abortions. Given the biblical teaching, then, the wickedness of abortion should be obvious to Christians. Yet, according to some polls, religious school students are just as likely to have abortions as their secular counterparts. Allegedly, one in four evangelicals in America are conflicted on the question of abortion. 
Silence on the issue in the church is often deafening unless it is a voice for abortion, as a recent survey of the United Church Observer found. What would we expect from the United Church? A champion of every anti-Christian issue that there is known to man today. To address the subject in many churches, you see, is seen as political. Because our culture has politicized these issues. And because it's seen as political, many pastors think it's beyond the sphere of biblical faith then, which is a reflection of our antinomianism, our lawlessness, our sense that God's law doesn't apply outside of the life of the church, if it even applies inside. Nevertheless, the true church has long seen, in terms of biblical faith, that the destruction of the human embryo is murder. And the grounds for this are seen in the sixth commandment, but also in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Let me read to you a case law from Exodus 21, 22 through 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this did not mean literally you poke somebody's eye out who gets a poke in the eye. This is the principle of the lex talionis. The punishment must fit the crime. Exact justice. Interestingly enough, pro-abortion intellectuals today increasingly do not try to deny the charge of murder. Camille Paglia, a social commentator and pro-abortion writer, has stated, and I quote, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue, end quote. Now, such an admission is obviously sufficient to dispel the idea that abortion is in any way rooted in selfish, compassionate motivations. And new motivations are being given to people today to abort children and to deny the command to be fruitful and multiply. And that's green motivations, that you are reducing your carbon footprint and reducing, therefore, the destruction of the planet. Another myth that we'll deal with in a future uh, leadership roundtable here and the subject of our next Jubilee Journal when I managed to complete my article, which is a bit late right now, I publicly confess. But let's consider this passage in Exodus for just a moment. This is a case law that sets out by a minimal case certain applications and implications of the sixth commandment. And the case here is of, obviously, the case laws don't cover an exhaustive list of every case that might occur. So it takes by minimal case an example so that you have a principle that can be applied. It takes the case here of an accidental uh, abortion or premature delivery. If the penalty for causing an abortion not by premeditated violence but by criminal negligence is so severe, it's obvious that a deliberately induced abortion is more strongly even forbidden. Even if a mother and child in this incident, this is an incident, a hypothetical situation, well, it was probably a real situation that had happened, and therefore Moses addresses it. Two men are fighting, they're struggling, a woman is caught up in the violence and is struck, she's pregnant, there's a miscarriage, the babies are born, if they're born alive, there's no harm, there's still a fine. If they're killed, the man's life is forfeit. In other words, what we find is that God's law sets around a pregnant woman and her embryo embryo, a hedge of protection second to none in the Bible. And yet, as Randy pointed out at the beginning, it's become the most dangerous place in North America. In Scripture, even a mother bird with her eggs or young is protected by the law. Did you know that? Deuteronomy 22.6. You can't take the mother and the eggs. 
or the baby birds, to prevent the exploitation of God's creation. If baby birds, if a mother bird is protected in God's law, how much more so human beings who are much more valuable than many sparrows? Didn't Jesus say, if God requires that a beast be killed that kills a man, which God's law requires, an unreasoning creature, what should be done with willful murderers? So the challenge we're facing today in applying God's word to the matter of abortion is not new. The early church had to confront it. It was an abortionistic culture. In fact, the two great ages of abortion in the history of the West were the Greco-Roman age and the present age. In Roman law, abortion and infanticide were not distinguished. So that infants did not have legal status until the head of the family, the pater familius, accepted the child into the family. Until that acceptance, any infant could be destroyed. This is why the early church picked up these abandoned babies under the bridges and aqueducts of the ancient world, adopted them into Christian families and raised them as Christians. That's why the early church was accused of cannibalism. Because if a father didn't want the child, he would just have it abandoned and left for the dogs to eat. And the Christians collected up all of these babies. And so when they were being vilified by the pagans, it was said that they ate these babies at their communion rites. By contrast to paganism, the early church condemned abortion. The church father Tertullian wrote, and I quote, to hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing. Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is, a man that is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. That is, a man that uh, a human being is fully human from the moment that it is conceived. And so serious was this to the church... That because the Roman Empire did not see abortion as a crime in the way that the Bible does, many elements of the church pronounced an ecclesiastical sentence of penance for life to indicate the nature of the offense. In fact, the Council of Ankara in AD 314 noted the earlier practice of penance for life, and they limited it to restitution or penance for 10 years. By the penance means here restitution. By contrast, among the pagans, for example, Tacitus, the Roman historian and senator, found it repugnant that Jews would not kill babies. They found it morally repugnant that life was valued in this way. But this battle for life is not a new one. Two American scholars wrote decades ago, and I quote, no human being is perfect. Would the world, moreover, really be a better place after the destruction of the millions of defective individuals? Has the world gained or lost from the services of the epileptic Michelangelo or the deaf Edison or the hunchback Steinmetz of the Roosevelts, both the asthmatic Theodore and the polio-paralyzed Franklin? It must be recognized that liberalized abortion laws would logically be followed by pressures for legalized euthanasia. The attack on life is essentially the same. They wrote that in the 1960s. And everybody said, oh, no, that won't happen. Well, this logical prophecy has come to pass, where in many states today we are legalizing euthanasia. Belgium just legalized child euthanasia just a few weeks ago. And many countries are well on the way to legalizing physician-assisted suicide, which is already legal in several parts of Europe. Bill 52 is coming before our parliament the issue of euthanasia here in Canada. Recently, the UK's Daily Mail Online published an article about the National Health Service. This attack you see on life that began with abortion is escalating. The National Health Service is the UK's socialized medicine system where a doctor blew the whistle on the NHS euthanizing 130,000 elderly patients every year in the name of something called the Liverpool Care Pathway because he said they were, quote, difficult to manage or to free up beds. 
The so-called right to die and to die well, which is the literal meaning of euthanasia, die well, are euphemisms for lawless killing. And the state has its reasons for promoting these things. Who's going to pay the tax bill for the elderly population to fund all of these socialized programs? Starts with the sanitized, medicalized language of the compassionate state, and it ends in a total disregard for life. And we refuse in, there, in that to learn the lessons of history. A psychiatrist working with the Nuremberg Tribunal, this is very interesting, described the process that led under the Nazis to Auschwitz, Belsen, Belsen and Treblinka. This is what he says, and I quote, The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in emphasis in the basic attitude of the physicians. The Hippocratic Oath, of course, is to protect life. It started with the attitude basic to the euthanasia movement that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in its early stages concerned itself with the severely and chronically sick. Gradually, the sphere of those to be included in this category was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and finally, all non-Germans. And today, it's very interesting to notice that the Nazi organization actually planned parenthood. Margaret Sanger was a Nazi. She was a fascist. She was a racist to the core. The vast majority of abortions in America are on the black community. The position of the Planned Parenthood clinics are targeted racially. And this international health for women push of the UN, what do they call it, reproductive rights and women's health, targets places like Africa, and Asia. For man to make himself judge over life, which life is worth living and which is not, is a terror from Satan himself. Jesus Christ said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. A murderer. We have no right to take life, even our own, on other than God's terms, and to do so is to make ourselves God. And since we are sinners, we end up taking the life he protects and preserving the life he requires. This requirement, then, of our Lord and of the word of God is that we don't bring guilt on ourselves and on the land. In fact, Numbers 35, verse 34, tells us, You shall not bring guilt upon the land in which you are, for the blood will bring guilt upon the land. The land will not have atonement for the blood that was spilled in it, except through the blood of the one who spilled it. You shall not contaminate the land in which you dwell, I in whose midst I rest. Here you have a covenantal statement, and with this I'm closing, as I see Randy out of his seat. A nation cannot violate God's law and receive no consequences. We were established as a Christian dominion, and the motto of our land is Psalm 72, verse 8. God does judge murder, and it does defile the land. Atonement is personal, not national. So even though whatever our sins, and we may have been, some of us may have been caught up ourselves in the sin of abortion, thank God that there was forgiveness for Moses, who was a murderer, and King David, who was a murderer, and St. Paul, who stood and held the coats of those who murdered Stephen and fully endorsed what they were doing. And he says, I'm the chief of sinners. But the grace of God was extended to him. Murder is not the unforgivable sin. Nonetheless, the land, our culture, our nation is defiled by the sin of murder. Atonement is personal. It is not national. And justice must be done and covenant judgments fall upon nations that violate God's law and despise life because the land is stained with blood. And from that land, the scripture says, God removes his presence, which is a terrible judgment, giving men over to depravity and a depraved mind. A culture that tolerates murder contaminates God's creation and it starts to stink. And our culture today, because death stinks, doesn't it? Death smells. And our culture today is a stench in God's nostrils and the scripture says he will not be mocked. 
Only by turning back to God, to the gospel, and applying his word can our culture be brought back from the judgments it is already suffering. And we as God's people are in our time the savor of both life and death when we obey the gospel of God. Life to those who are being saved, scripture says, death to those who are perishing. So today we are urging and encouraging each other in the faith to preserve life. God is the Lord of life, and these commandments come from the Lord of life that we might be blessed personally in our families and as a nation. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.